Hello, everyone. We wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about the 23rd World Petroleum Congress that is happening really soon here in Houston, Texas, on December 5th to the 9th. It's returning to the U.S. for the first time in over 30 years and bringing amazing guest speakers. It's a great place to network with like-minded individuals. You really don't want to miss this one. To find out more information, please visit their website and make sure to register at www.23wpchouston.com. See you guys there. You're listening to Flipping the Barrel Podcast, a women's perspective in oil and gas. We are your hosts, Macy and Jamie. And our mission here is simple, to bring you the untold stories of this industry. Welcome back to another podcast. We're recording here from the Doug Permian, and we have the co-founder of Triple Crown Resources, Ryan Keyes, with us. Thank you for coming on today, which he's actually having a talk tomorrow morning that he's been working on today. Yes. Are you finishing that up? Procrastinated a little bit, and uh, apologies to the heart staff if any of you are listening to this, so I'll get it to you at about 2 or 3 a.m. tonight. Procrastination. I mean, I have to say some of my best work came, you know, at the deadline. Oh, so yeah. It was all that pressure. Yeah. You start performing because you have to. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so before we started the podcast, you mentioned there was an, there's another company or what were you saying about you, Triple Crown? Yeah, there, there's actually another Triple Crown. That was Triple Crown Energy. It's in Oklahoma. So that's, that's why we can have the same name, but it's still confusing. Yeah. Oh, there, there's, okay. a, you know, there's a Laredo Energy in Texas. It's yes. a private company. There's, there's the publicly traded one that's that's based in Oklahoma. So mm-hmm. yeah, kind of the, kind of the same thing, but it causes some confusion. <laughs> and uh, of course, they, there are a couple other operators with the, with the word Crown in their name in the Permian. Crown Quest, yes, and, Crown, yeah, and, yes, exactly, exactly. So maybe not the most original, but I picked it because it's you know a triple Crown is supposed to be a very rare event. You know, a confluence of. You know, all kinds of good good factors. But my partner, I still think he'll never admit it. The main reason he liked that, and I agreed, is that our investors are really into horse racing. Okay, so that makes it, sense. It never hurts. Wow. <laughs> That's so awesome. I didn't even think about that when yeah. I thought about the name, that you're right. It is, yeah, the Kentucky Derby, mm-hmm. the Triple Crown. That's like a really big event. It is. So you said your investors are, they, do they go, have they been to the Kentucky Derby? I'm sure they oh, have. Oh, yes. And uh, one of the gentlemen there, and Gertown's our sponsor, your primary sponsor, actually has owned and, and owns some racehorses. Oh, wow. Uh, so he, he is very much into it uh, to, to the point where he has... Uh... So you named the company after him, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. You knew that you needed that money. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ryan, we really want to know about you, like where you yeah. grew up, what was life like as a young boy into you know what made you get your mechanical engineering degree. And then I believe you went into petroleum. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, I just grew up in Austin and knew I was pretty good at math and, and science is like, okay, engineering sounds like something I, I really, you know, I had a vague idea of what it was, you mm-hmm. know, as a high school senior, you, you kind of you do your reading and in the end you have very little idea what, what, what they actually do as an 18 year old. But yeah. so I, I just started looking around the country at, at engineering schools and growing up in Austin, there's a pretty good one there. And based on the cost, it was I mean, we're talking, you know, two thousand, two thousand dollars a semester. When it I made was there. sense. It yeah. made so much economic sense. Yeah. And actually, you had to make that decision again a, a few years later, going to going to A and M and getting a. I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but getting a master's there, and it was again, it, it was it was just the the slam dunk, you know, easy decision to make based on 
you know, cost, cost benefit. Mm -hmm. It's relatively cheap and you're close to home, you close to home and, and, and the quality is outstanding. Mm -hmm. What did your parents do? Was there any influence on engineering? Did they want you to be an engineer? Was there really no push parent wise as to who they wanted you to be one day? There was a little bit. They, they tried to stand back and, and let me make my own decision. The other thing I knew was it was a way to, to make a pretty good living. I, mm -hmm. I, I think that that was, that probably weighed into it more than, than what my actual talents were. Mm -hmm. And after getting in, it was just, you know, foregone conclusion. That's got into UT mechanical engineering. Yeah, that's that's where I'm going. I mean, that that's wherever that takes me. That it, it'll be, you know, it, it's a good foundation for whatever that is. Did you think oil and gas was going to be like the end all be all for you at that time, or was there because you didn't you didn't go first into petroleum, so right. you were first mechanical. So exactly. there had to have been some sort of reasoning behind that. Yeah, no inclination at all. Had zero had zero family connection, or I didn't have any any connections myself. And growing up in Austin wasn't exactly you know oil and gas mm -hmm. mecca. Although it's it's changing very slowly mm -hmm. you know, now, but it was used uh, some some natural abilities. And mechanical engineering is kind of the the liberal arts of engineering. You, mm -hmm. you get a little bit of everything. You get some. You can do almost anything. Yeah, going to any industry you really yeah, want. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And oil and gas happened. There was a senior design project that that Schlumberger mm -hmm. had sponsored. Is test, testing some some oil field equipment that kept failing in in Australia, and at LWD a logging tool and turn that into a, an internship and that turned into to, to full-time employment and it was the campus in, in Sugarland. Okay. Uh, so that was your first kind of first job out of school, first introduction to oil and gas yes. was working. Yes. Okay. And yeah, sorry, right before that, I, I did a few internships at a place called, is a, a research facility, the Center for Electromechanics okay. uh, associated with, with uh, UT Austin. Mostly military contracts, worked on a lot of just really interesting, you know, state-of-the-art stuff. It's some of the big, like Lockheed, the you know, okay. big defense contractors would subcontract some of their research to the Center for Electromechanics. If there was a very you know, research-intensive problem they're trying to solve, that's kind of what it was for. So, spent three semesters doing that, and that was that was really interesting. I actually thought that might turn into a career mm -hmm. until the Schlumberger Design Project, and it was just like, oh, this seems like a pretty pretty good job for a. You know, 23-year-old fresh fresh graduates. Uh, yeah. So, so like, what happened? Because you only stayed there for a year. Yes. Um, you didn't think you were going to be like 30-plus years long yeah. traveling the world like everybody had, else. You I had got no sucked idea. into the blue. Right. I was sucked. Yeah. I, I guess you would know. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I really enjoyed my time there, but as a mechanical engineer at Schlumberger, the options weren't limited necessarily, yeah. but that, that wasn't necessarily the role that would be the most intellectually stimulating for me yeah. specifically. Did you get a chance to go to the field and like, cause like, you know, you can start as a field engineer. Yes. I feel like that would have been good. Yes. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot of like hands on out yes. there. Yes. I went back and forth on that. And my experience was almost completely confined to that Sugarland campus. No. It, was, it was more r &D. I could see where that would be. That would be for, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. And you were like, I need something different. Yes, exactly. And there was a path to that. I mean, I, I asked my boss, it, it, there was a path to the field engineer role, and the more direct one was just to go get a master's in petroleum engineering. So mm -hmm. that's that's what I did, and did, did a little search, and A&M. They're known for that. So. What, what, what they were offering was outstanding, and coming from UT, it was just like, yeah, I, there was a little something to get yeah. over, but yeah. after, you know, visiting, and like all these research opportunities, and, and they, you know, gave me a little salary, you know, I had to teach, uh -huh. I was a TA, and I had to do some research assistant work as well to, to earn that salary. 
but I didn't really didn't go into much debt. So oh, that's uh, awesome. So you so got it made so much sense. paid for. So it made sense for you in the long run to do yes. that. So and you, the research was interesting. Yeah, it, it was it was awesome. So I, I still remember to look back on that fondly. What um, kind of research do you, can you recall? Like what there was a big grant from one of the national, I think the national oil company in Qatar. They wanted to figure out an acid job, right? Mm-hmm. So most of their gas comes out of these these huge, you know, it's mostly offshore. It's called the Shawaiba Formation. It's a big carbonate reservoir out in the, the you know, Persian Gulf, Arabian Gulf, whatever you want to call it. Okay. Some people get offended about that. Mm-hmm. But the type of, of rock that it was is big vugs. It, you know, your carbonate, the porosity, you've got, you know, maybe something that approaches, you know, normal porosity, how we visualize it in our heads. But there's also these huge vugs, there's just massive, you know, cavities, almost like karst, mm-hmm. like, you know, like a, like a limestone, little miniature limestone mm-hmm. cavern. And it's just random. It's impossible to predict. So we wanted to simulate the effectiveness of introducing, you know, hydrochloric acid and, and some hydrofluoric, but that, that became a little bit dangerous. Yeah, on how, what that increase in productivity mm-hmm. would mean for the well based on, you know, a pressure a molarity mm-hmm. of you know injecting this into the reservoir, but you know, obviously we can't do that in a, in a live well. Mm-hmm. So there's um, a lot of simulations, and yeah. it, it was actually there's almost a perfect analog in the hill country right here in Texas, oh, wow. just west of Austin. The Edwards Formation okay. is almost a perfect analog to that Shoaiba Formation offshore cutter. The rocks almost identical in in places. So I just looked around, scoured around, and found these gigantic limestone boulders that had these big vugs. And made some core samples out of them and tested how much hydrochloric acid do I need to, you know, connect all these, all this buggy porosity. And, you know, that, that, that was it. So. so you sound like to be like a really hands-on guy. Like you want to be like in the trenches and doing stuff is yeah. what it seemed like. So being in the service side that you were in and as a mechanical engineer, it didn't really like give you what you were searching for. So then, mm-hmm. but what's interesting is that Knowing that, you went into investment banking, yes. which seems like <laughs> nothing like... Yes. Yeah, but, but between your master's, what was your first job outside of master's? That was kind of a reserves consulting company. Okay. They yeah, specialized in, you know, like kind of a reserves auditor, you know, subsurface consulting and reserves. And it specialized, this was in 2009, 2010, so the unconventionals were starting to get kicked mm-hmm. off. The company's called Object Reservoir. It had, had some really cool technology you know, at the time, you know, very ahead of its time in modeling instead of decline curve analysis, mm-hmm. which is what people usually use to generate you know, economics, actually could come up with some reservoir models for a horizontal well with uh, you know, multiple transverse fractures, mm-hmm. which is all we do now, more or less, with many exceptions. Yeah. I mean, it, so that was just getting kicked off. And the angle was, you know, let's bring this technology overseas. So... The biggest client was YPF National Oil Company in Argentina, mm. and did you get to move there? Yeah, live there. Oh, that's pretty cool. I did. Awesome. I did. It, it was it was a good time. It was in the West. It was in Patagonia, but not the Patagonia people really think of yeah, in their uh-huh. heads when you hear was that. Was it word. near New Ken or? It was in New Ken. Okay. Exactly. I heard that is not a nice place. <laughs> it was okay. I, I spent a lot of time in the time. It's usually a, high, a higher coefficient if you have to go there. Yes. Like. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. The beautiful Andes Mountains and you know Patagonia. What people normally think of yeah. just you know, mountains and lakes. Just just pristine beauty. 
that was only a two and a half, three hour drive away. Okay. Oh, wow. So, well, that kind of seems like a dream job. Yeah. Being that close to something so pretty. So, yeah. what made you leave? And go, yeah. So, from there, you left to investment yeah, banking. To investment mm-hmm. banking. What was going through your mind? Like, I can't even think of investment I know. banking. I especially, especially, yeah. Because you were, you went engineering, then you mm-hmm. did master's in petroleum, like things that you, you didn't do business. You didn't, you know, where, where did that passion, I guess, come from? So there's a lot of exposure at this, this subsurface firm. You know, the reserves auditors are, are kind of this, this linchpin between you know, the, the hardcore engineering and, and the balance sheet, the debt worthiness of, of, mm-hmm. of a company. It's still largely, it's being phased out somewhat, but it's still largely based on your reserves mm-hmm. and the value of those reserves. So it's, it's this, it's a, you know, a lot of reservoir engineers you know, do this. It's, it's the, Again, the, the linchpin between operations and your, mm-hmm. you know, your your finance and, and your balance sheet. So, you know, connecting those, those two, you know, those two parts of the business together. Okay. So th- there was a lot of economics, a, a lot of you know, asset valuations, and I got to do that very extensively in Argentina. And then, what? Uh, so what? What Jeffries liked about that? It, it started off as as like a you know a diligence, you know, internal technical team, you know, kind of role. And they needed someone with experience in all these different basins. And you know, what I was able to, to get from Object Reservoir was that experience, not just in Argentina, but after that, that project mm-hmm. was done, you know, the Marcellus was just kicking off. The, so the you Hainesville. had knowledge in all these different basins on yes. the reservoir, and that kind of brought you into, like on that investment banking side, they could look to you as the guy that yes. would kind of know and read and be able to... Right, explain to investors yeah. or a buyer, someone who might not, you know, an investor who might not be familiar with, you know, the Marcellus... And, yeah, or even just like what a rock is. And, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it, a lot of them don't even know what we do. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it, exactly. What did you love most about that job versus working in like an OFS type role? It was obviously wildly different, but it was that macro view mm-hmm. of, you know, it's it's all driven by capital markets in the end. I mean, we're doing this. This is a big deal right now with the ESG. You know, how is ESG affecting capital markets? So. Mm-hmm. You know, back then it wasn't that you know ESG wasn't wasn't a thing. It was like, what is this you know shale development look like? Mm-hmm. You know, 2011, 2012, it was still you know Eagleford was just getting kicked off. Mm-hmm. So and talk about you know oily basins. You know, but Bakken had been going for 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 a couple of years, but it was still very new, mm-hmm. and there just wasn't a lot of experience in those basins and being able to explain the value proposition to to investors or buyers and Jeffries. I mean, most of the most of the fees came from divestitures, acquisitions and divestitures. It's you know, a company wants to sell itself like a private equity-backed company that, that you know, might prove up a concept, mm-hmm. sell it to a bigger oil company, or might be a bigger company that, that wants to carve off a piece that's no longer a core area and, and, you know, and sell it. That's, that's what we do. So it still it required for an investment bank. It definitely helped having that technical expertise yeah. within the business. And Getting exposed to you know the, the the high finance part of it was was really is fascinating, and the deal volume you know, worked on so many that just huge deals that made you know made headlines you know not just in you know local papers but you know Wall Street Journal. Is that what kind of gave you the itch to like do it on your own or like co-found something? Because you're like, <laughs> did you have to go I to New York and do yeah. like the typical movie stuff? We had someone on the podcast that worked <laughs> in investment banking, and she actually said it was like. Kind of like the movies where it's really hard. It's nonstop. Mm-hmm. These people don't sleep. It's a hardcore environment. Like, it was is a that lot. Kind of what you experienced as well. It was a lot. I came in sort of mid-level, at least my first couple of years. So, the worst of it were the people who experienced the worst were the fresh out of college grads. That they're the analysts, uh-huh. analysts mm-hmm. and associates. Just get 
and they know it too, but I came in kind of mid-level, you know, started off that way. And yeah, it, it was a lot. And I think of when, like Wolf on Wall Street. Yeah, maybe Wolf, <laughs> I mean, I think the first thing I go to. <laughs> you know, that, that's, there are some similarities. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure. I mean, there was a lot of big personalities and a lot of big numbers thrown around and a lot of big transactions and a lot of financiers. And, and it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. It, it was very interesting. I, yeah, after, after I was there for five years and, you know, it advanced a little bit working on some things, you know, autonomously and, you know, pitching business and everything. But I, selling, and th- that was basically our job as, as a firm, was to, was to go sell companies and assets mm-hmm. and go find a buyer for them mm-hmm. and meet these management teams, which were, a lot of them were really, really good. It was just like, these guys are awesome. And some of them were like, wow, you, I mean, you're just there at the right place at the right time. Like, yeah. I, I could at least do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I could try to be at the you know, right place yeah. at the right time. And I, I think I could do as, as well as you know, some of these folks who are actually really good at their jobs. And I, I learned a lot from them. So I just thought, yeah, this is something I, I can go do. I can only imagine, like, because you were actually on the side where you would meet the teams that would be coming pitching mm-hmm. to y'all. Mm-hmm. So you could see, and you could see these guys or, or girls or whatever, and you'd be like, wow, they really don't have anything that I don't like. That I, don't I have, possess I all those do. same qualities. Yeah. So why don't I go and do that? And here they just sold millions of dollars yeah. and walk out with a nice paycheck. Exactly. <laughs> that is exactly. so interesting. And you know, a lot of people don't get to experience that. And so they always fear having their own business because they don't understand that transactional part or what that looks like. Mm-hmm. So can you give just like a little example of maybe somebody who came in to try to pitch to you and what does that look like from your end on like what kind of attributes are not just financial, but what else do you look at as far as when you find a partner? Yeah. And you're talking about my standard deal at while, while, while I was at Jeffrey. Yeah. It was actually kind of the opposite. We would go pitch to people and come up with, you know, with, with ideas. Some of them are very obvious. You know, it's like a you know, standard you know, private equity life cycle is, you know, private equity firm, you know, grants an equity commitment to, to a team. They go out and find assets or, you know, build up an acreage position, well, that's not happening very much anymore. Mm-hmm. And then once you get to a certain maturity, they proved up the value, you'd sell it. And then your know, private equity and management team would, would all make a lot of money if it went well. Mm-hmm. So that was usually the pitch. Uh, we, we played a lot more on the private side. The big guys, you know, the cities and, you know, the bigger bulge bracket investment banks of, of, of the world had kind of an in because they, they, you know, different business unit would finance the debt for some of these companies. So they, they did a lot of the you know, high level, high level, high level M&A. Although, you know, Jeffries did, did some of that too. But anyway, let, let me get back to the, our experience. So we'd go, we'd go pitch and we'd say, okay, look, we think this is a great time to sell or not. You know, it depends on the market dynamics. Or he'd say, like, hey, you know, prove up this, this, you know, area over here. Or, you know, have you looked over here at what these guys are doing? You know, maybe bring that, those learnings in, into your business. It'll increase the, the, you know, the value. We can get, get, get you a better number. Mm. And then, you know, sometimes it's just like, you guys did an awesome job. It is time to sell and you guys are going to make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And we think we're the ones that'll be able know, to get you that yeah. deal. Yeah, or- yeah, exactly. You go out to the market and you'll market it around. So that was the standard, standard flow. And then you'd have data rooms or anywhere between five and 20 other mm-hmm. companies would show up or investors and hear the, you know, the sales pitch. And I wasn't you know, very much involved with giving that sales pitch on, on the asset or, or the company. And then you, you just run a process. It's basically an auction. Mm-hmm. And then it, it could get a little complicated, but usually it would, it would involve you know, a bid date. People have to submit their bids, whether it's cash or equity or a little bit of both or something else that's mm-hmm. a little crazy. We, we, we had a couple of those. And then we'd review them with our clients and say, you know, here, here's what we have. Pick um, the best and we like this one, this mm-hmm. one, and this one. And you know, sometimes it was obvious. Like someone just 
often the bids would come in, and especially in 2014, 15, 16, there was usually an outlier. It's just like, guys, we don't need to advise you. That's the best. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you better take this yeah. money yeah. Yes. Yeah, this one is, this is awesome. And yeah, that, that just meant that, you know, that the marketing did a good, you know, we did a good job. Or sometimes it was just the team was so good and the asset was so good, it almost marketed itself. Yeah. yeah. So, and y'all were just there to facilitate. Yes. And it's easier for me to say now that not working for them. Yeah. But they, there were a few of those processes like, guys, you did awesome. This mm-hmm. is fantastic. We're just kind of here making the process go smoothly for you. Mm-hmm. So... And you know, some some needed a lot more effort, especially if it was a complicated story. If it was like, well, I, like like investors or companies get used to the same story, if it's outside those bounds. You need to make it attractive and attractive. Yes, story. yes, yeah, exactly. And what's weird is, yeah, sometimes we get conventional assets in 2016, and you'd sell selling something that's more conventional mm-hmm. stuff. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we did or this, you know, the industry did up through. You know, mostly up through you know 2005. It, it's not it's not in the very distant past, and a lot of investors weren't used to that. It's like a decade of unconventionals. It's like, oh, what? How do I evaluate? Yeah, well, how do I conventional even look at risk? This? Mm-hmm. How do I do this? Mm-hmm. And it started crowding out the space, that investor space. A lot of those dollars became harder to find for mm-hmm. you know more more conventional ideas. It's really interesting. And now a little word from our sponsor, Technique FMC. Marcel, you know what I really appreciate about Technique FMC being one of our sponsors is their mission is directed towards a more inclusive and diverse workforce. One of the reasons why we started this podcast, as many of you know, was to move the industry forward, and they back that belief. Their focus is creating a culture of inclusion that will attract, develop, and retain a more diverse, talented group and ensure their employees can always bring their authentic selves to work. This is important, you know, especially to our generation. Totally agree with you, Jamie. But beyond the DNI, they're also big into technology. They believe in change and innovation in everything they do. Their offerings range from individual products and services to fully integrated solutions with a single interface to ensure a seamless execution. They have four main priorities, energy transition, emerging materials, digital, and industrialization. To find out more about their most popular technologies like SubC 2.0, iProduction, Gemini ROV system and I complete, go to techniquefmc.com. Would you say growing up or even kind of like while you were getting your master's or even at Jeffries, was there ever that I want to be CEO one day or I want to be co-founder or president of like, did you have like these big aspirations of what you wanted to do in life? Or do you think all of these things just happened by like how your life was supposed to work out? Or, I, or did you have like that goal board of like, yeah, I'm going to be super successful one day? That's a, that's a good question. And we were talking about this before we went on camera. You know, I used to sometimes have these ideas of you know, what, what I wanted to do. And I think there at times it was like, yeah, it'd be great to be a you know, founder of a company or, or the boss of a you know, mm-hmm. small business or a medium-sized business or a large business, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. Everyone kind of dreams of that. It's just your, you know, that it's an extension of you. And, but I don't think I was, I was more inclined that way than let's take the subset of, you know, senior management at, at oil and gas companies right now. I bet most of them would say, answer this question. Yes, I did want to run my own business. Mm-hmm. So I think among that group, that, that peer group, I'm probably what well, was way below average in terms of like, it wasn't a huge priority. It was like, yeah, that sounds cool if it happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's kind of like what you said. That's just kind of what unfolded. So I did have these, you know, these plans, you know, three year, five year plan, and they would all just be you know, just yeah. gone after six months. It's like, <laughs> yeah. okay, well, I just, I just adapt. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to adapt. I'm going to pay attention 
be humble because as soon as you're not humble, you think you know everything, you get you know, kicked to the curb real quick. Yes, yes, you do. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. Humility before the task. There's always something new to learn and there's always someone better than you. Mm-hmm. So what would you say is one of your biggest learnings through this process? And then when you became co-founder, what is like one thing that sticks out to you that you're like, yeah, this is advice that I would like to share with, you know, our, the listeners, because this is something that really impacted me. You know, going from you know, investment banking and, and M&A selling assets, I mean, we, we were in the business of, of selling things mm-hmm. and selling the dream. And often those dreams would come true. They're like these assets are, some of them were awesome, some of them weren't. Yeah. But that wasn't our job. And, you know, it, it, it's not the job of, of you know, a, a, someone on the sell side to find the, the, you know, the perfect number of asset value that, that everyone can agree on that both seller and buyer can represent. No, it's our job to get, was our job to get the best number for our client. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times we'd, we'd be, you know, like there's this spot of like it's reasonable, but it's, you know, not the likeliest scenario. It's like, okay, if you believe these three things, then here's what it's worth. And you know, more often than not, you'd get something close to that. So that's a different, very different mindset from like it's your actual, it's our actual business now. Let's go to the founding of Triple Crown and you know, assets. You have to plan for the the inverse, the opposite of that, basically the worst case scenario. And yeah. so it, it was definitely you know a, a change in mindset. And, and there's this idea, and it works a lot. It, it does work a lot. You fake it till you make it, right? Yeah. That you could you know build a business that way, but it's going to come crumbling down unless somewhere along the way. You get really good at what you do, yeah. or there's some nice foundation mm-hmm. of like real talent and a you know, real real value proposition. Mm-hmm. It, and you all, have, I'm sure, have seen and you know, stories of that. It's just like, oh, oh man, like that was a good sales job, but you know, poor execution. Yes, like yes. what happened there? For yes, sure. and there's that game that I guess it is a game. It's just like, look, get investors excited about something, but also be able to deliver what you're selling. Because I'm young. This is, this is my first oil and gas company. It was my partner's first oil and gas company. Reputations get ruined if you pitch something that is just so far removed from you. Yeah. at all. Yeah. Exactly. You're going to be known as that guy. Yeah, yeah, They're like, well, yes. that's that's last time. everyone knows yes. each other. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So for, while yeah. you were at Jeffries and you had this idea with your partner and you, know, you start talking while you're working, how long did it take from like an idea to you quit your job and then you go and start Triple Crown Resources LLC and you get your little certificate? There you go. Mm-hmm. So I was, and Nathan, I'd known him, it's, it's my, my partner, Nathan Picard. I'd known him for, for a little while and it, it would just sometimes just talk about it over, you know, we just, you know, this, this would be cool. Mm-hmm. This would be interesting. You know, what, what are you seeing? And yeah, he'd always wanted to do the same thing. Did he also work at Jeffries? No, his previous role before Triple Crown was at Midcon. Okay. It was an MLP, the upstream MLP model that doesn't, it worked at $100 a barrel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It didn't, especially if, when, when you locked in debt at $100 a barrel and then crashed a fit. Anyway, anyway, he wanted to do the same thing and then, it kind of coalesced, and within a couple of months of that idea, sort of, this is something I actually want to do, we want to do, and it's just the two of us, but, you know, within a couple of months of that, I'd resigned from Jeffries, and I wanted to do, yeah, that's, that's the other thing you talk about, you know, reputation. There are stories, I don't think it's very common, of people kind of doing that for a long time in yeah. parallel, and, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's not, it makes both worse, generally speaking. Yeah. I do feel pretty good about, you know, when I was, 
ready to leave. Ready yes. to leave. Yeah. It happened quickly. Yeah. You didn't like build this on the side yeah. and yeah. then leave. And then the next week no. they're like, oh, look, who just started? Who and just he's already done. Yeah. yeah. He already exactly. Yeah. Been yeah. Months he's been working on this. Yes. Right. Yeah. See, I, I went uh, three months without any salary. Just, I mean, because it, we had a high confidence that you know, it was going to be Yorktown was our, is our sponsor. But if it wasn't Yorktown, this is just this is something I, I was ready to take the risk on. If it's mm-hmm. not them, well, let's just let's just keep going. So, so I don't right. know anything about owning an, or an operating a you know small business in Midland. But mm-hmm. so you go from how does it even start? You have to go buy land. Well, first you need money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you yeah. need an idea. Yeah. You need an asset it, area. For you to get money, yeah. you have to tell them what land you want mm-hmm. and. So when you're looking at land, like, are you guys looking at logs? How does that work? Or like valuations? It, and- it depends. I kind of all of the above. Our angle was, you know, it, we lacked the, we, yeah, at the time, I have a lot more gray hair now than, than I did back then, <laughs> but, and same with my partner. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of work. It was, you know, we were good at shale. That's basically, I, I matriculated in the unconventional world mm-hmm. and all of my oil and gas experiences with unconventionals and same with my partner. So we felt, despite our, our lack of, you know, it's not like we had 40 years of experience, mm-hmm. but we had really good unconventional experience, and we were young to, to form a young team mm-hmm. that had seen a lot of a lot mm-hmm. of volume and learn from a lot of the mistakes. And this was, I guess, I left in 2017. Made a lot of mistakes figuring out unconventionals. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of those mistakes were on the capital market side, and some of them were on on the operations side. But we'd learned from those mistakes, and we wanted to to, to bring very robust you know, data analytic and analytics platform to an oil and gas company. And, and when you're starting from scratch, it's a lot easier that we weren't starting from scratch. Our business was new. We actually acquired a company as the foundation for, for, for the new business. When you acquire a company, you mean you get their land yes. mm-hmm. and their operating assets, and whatever they have? Exactly, exactly. Okay. And But, but you know, before we'd, we'd done that, we, we had this kind of model. It was what would bring in younger folks who aren't, you know, they needed to work. Yeah, they're and, hungry. And yeah. Yorktown liked that. Like, we, we had to make this work because it's our first time and we're young. And mm-hmm. if we don't make this one work, then... And you have a lot of years ahead. Yeah. You don't have, yeah. like, these nice trust funds. Well, bonds. you have a lot yeah. of years ahead of you. So it's yes. like, not like, oh, it didn't work. I'm retiring anyways. It's yeah. like, it didn't work. And now my whole career is exactly. based on this one failure. So... Exactly. Yes. And luckily, it's a success, not a failure. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> so once, you, once you get the land and you mm-hmm. have, you know, the investors and all that, how do you go about... Like finding the rigs and which drilling companies you want to use and what sort like that's a lot. I mean, I feel like I know like five percent of what I've done in the mm-hmm. field, and I can't like I would think it'd be really hard to just go and start something. Sure. Or do you just get really good people? <laughs> yeah. You to go it. do all yeah. my work. Yeah, exactly. Okay. We we had the kind of high level drill. idea, yeah. but like, and we got some really really good people, and you know, wanted to align interest from from day one. That you know, that was the other thing is. It, no matter what, keep interests aligned because mm-hmm. when they become, mm-hmm. people start wanting to go yeah. different directions, it's going to tear things apart. Mm-hmm. So that's been number one since, since day one with our team. And we've been pretty pretty intact since since day one. We've how how big is your team? 27 people, okay. 27 that's full-time employees. And did you personally know the employees beforehand or did y'all, or like between you and your partner or, or did, was there some, like, did you do some research on people to find them or how did that go about? So we had a, a few folks that, that we really liked that, that, that we wanted to be part of our core team, but what we bought was quite a bit bigger than anything we planned. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a long story unto itself, but it, it was, we needed their people. It was an, an existing business. It was quite big. And to run the business, we needed a lot of 
their people. Mm-hmm. And we had to go convince them. It's like, hey, you know, we're, we're going to, this is a fresh start for, you know, for everyone. Here's where we're going. And we, we got a, a lot of them to join us because we, we really needed them. Well, they Especially understood the asset that. already yes. and they knew all the back history and you don't go into a well and you're like, yeah. why is there a big casing patch right here that we can't get across? Oh, John knew about that years ago. Well, y'all let him go. It's yeah. like you had everybody there that exactly. actually knew everything. So, And exactly. I know that's really important. It is. And it just it, all the administrative stuff, the just down in the weeds stuff, mm-hmm. I mean, that machine was built already. Mm-hmm. All we did was kind of tweak it and, and bring in a few other people and, and it, it, it worked out really well. Mm-hmm. There were some great people that, that were at the old company that you know, get, came to the new one. So we're really fortunate. One that. question that we always ask is like work-life balance. Like you're, are, you're at this conference. You already sound like you're super busy today. <laughs> and you obviously... You um, 3 a.m. Yeah. Done yeah. At 3 a.m. <laughs> so you obviously like, you know, you're, you sound like you probably work a lot. I mean, yeah. maybe, maybe we're wrong, but I would assume so. How have you been able to manage that? And what does that day look like to, for you? The way to answer this, when it first started off, there were, there were like fires you had to put out. Just integrate, even though they're great people, there's just stuff that, that comes out of it. I, I definitely got burned out that first year. Mm-hmm. But as the, with, with the, you know, since we got great people, processes became streamlined. People got used to each other, got used to the asset. Mm-hmm. It is a you know, living, living, breathing like ecosystem of asset you know, in people and you know, organization. Mm-hmm. And once that got going, it did start to get a lot easier. Mm-hmm. So you just got to make sure everyone's going the same direction. Interests are aligned, and that's everyone. We give everyone equity. Mm-hmm. That's companies huge. Do that. so, mm-hmm. That's huge because then everyone's on the same page. Of, we would need this to be successful because we're all going to get a little piece yes. out of it. Yes, and it's the same equity type of equity I have. It's not some different class that only happens like one in a you know. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's chance. kind of... You all get the chance, it, and you know, and I like that too because it takes every, it takes the whole team. It's not just you. It's not just your co-partner. Yeah. You know, it's the whole team. The same out yes. of it. So I think that's really beneficial. You guys started it in 2017, which obviously we had just come down of a little small mm-hmm. downturn. You've been in several, I would say, since you got yep. into oil and gas. <laughs> yes. Was yeah. that kind of obviously it was something you were probably worried about? Mm-hmm. But did you see COVID coming? <laughs> I bet you did. <laughs> no, not at all. But what really helped us out and it might have saved us is just you know hedging. You're know, getting the, yes. the the financial contracts. So we were really aggressive with hedging even before COVID. A lot of people just hedged their their currently producing wells. Mm-hmm. Like okay, you just drill a well and, and you like the price, or maybe the bank's making you or something. Hedging that PDP volume that declines yeah. over time. What we would do was one step past that. We would hedge wells that we hadn't even drilled yet. Mm. And it was just this this kind of this dance between, okay, what do the service costs look like? What are the commodity prices? And once we find we, we like the economics of a project, we'll lock in the service costs simultaneously, lock in the hedges for the well that's not even drilled yet. Mm. And, ahead. So you already know your yeah. AFE yes. and your costs, what you're going to make. Per- exactly. Well, so you're basically locking in a return. It's not till the end of time. We'd, we'd lock these in until basically the well's paid out. Yeah, it's plus or minus maybe a couple months, kind of depending on the situation. But So through COVID, you guys were able to kind of just stay stagnant? There was no yeah. need to we were, buy or lay off 90% of the company? We were 100% hedged on our oil. So when oil prices went negative, we were still getting something in the low 50s. Did y'all still end up operating? For 100% of our barrels. Did you end up drilling new wells during that year too? And mm-hmm. then how many, was it a full program or? So... COVID hit in March. We were in the middle of a seven well pad. Mm. We actually only completed the well bores were in the ground, so we had seven ducks. Only completed three of them 
and then that's when it really started tanking and you know and more negative so we're just twenty dollars like, okay, a barrel. <laughs> this is now a three wheel pad and we're gonna just defer these other ones indefinitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons we're hundred percent hedged. It was just like we just have to cover the hedges mm-hmm. a little yeah. bit. You put on enough volume to, to cover the the returns were already locked in. It was yeah. just like, but why would we you, you never want to be 100% unless you're in that situation where, where your hedges are worth a ton of money. So I heard, though, during kind of like downturns, it's the best time to be drilling. And yeah. because all the service, service companies costs. are service basically costs. like, hey, for a dollar, I'll go out and drill for you. Right. You know, everyone's right. desperate. Yeah, definitely. And towards, I think it was in August and September when oil prices, high 30s, low 40s, mm-hmm. they had tanked so much. And we really like our you know, contractors and, you know, service companies. We work really well together. This, they're one of the main reasons we're mm-hmm. still in existence yeah. is our execution's excellent. Our relationship is good. And, you know, part of it was keeping them busy and that relationship intact to keep the machine going. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you don't want to risk them actually going out of business because it, of Exactly. That, yeah. And we also don't want to be the ones trying to save that extra, you know, three or four or five percent and becoming a real asshole about it yeah. because they'll remember that. And it is going to flip. It's probably going to be 2022 for all the service company listeners out there. Um, We're already seeing it now, to be honest. Yes. Yeah. We're it, it's going to flip. Going back up. Especially price. with ESG and people wanting dual fuel fleets or wanting electric fleets. Yep. There's only so much in the market. So yeah. it's definitely coming towards like, I need this now. Like, can I do a contract? Things that companies weren't saying, you know, yeah. earlier. So exactly. We see that. And so this is when we'll say, we'll, we'll go to our same same service companies like, hey, remember how we were so nice yeah. in the depths yeah. of COVID? <laughs> Cut us a break. Yeah. We know you're going to make a ton of money. Just don't just don't make it hurt too bad. Yeah. It's the, <laughs> remember yeah. when I kept the doors open yes. for you? Yes, yeah. exactly. That's how to run a long-term business. But something mm-hmm. so cyclical is to do stuff like that. So people remember that. It's kind of what's cool about the oil field is, is that people still operate with that, yeah. with that in mind a lot of the time. Yeah, what I really liked is you talking about like a partnership with OFS companies because truly you're not here without OFS and mm-hmm. OFS isn't here without you. Yeah. And so it sounds really good to hear that from an operator coming from we're both in the service side. Yeah. So, And to end the podcast, we'd like to for you to just provide some advice to our listeners on like the future of oil and gas and what you think they can do to make sure that, you know, a lot of people are questioning coming into the industry, a lot, especially yeah. like the a young lot of generation. Through the layoffs, we mm-hmm. you always lose really great people. Yes, and we've then, seen like a mass exit. I think this time, yeah, yeah. a lot not of people who are not, not going to come back. Yeah, and, yeah. And with the whole um, ESG and people thinking, you know, Tesla's going to come replace us tomorrow, right. and you know, oil's gone. But also, just people out of school aren't choosing petroleum engineering anymore no. because who would want to go into such a cyclical business, especially now? And you know, everybody wants to go work at Facebook, Apple. Mm-hmm. Like, what's your take on? why they should come in oil and gas. And, and this is being discussed extensively right now at this conference. It's like we've kind of abdicated our marketing of the, the business, how important it is. And I'm not saying anything you know, super unique right now, but we haven't done a great job of that, especially right now. It's like you know, these ideas and of you know, renewables taking market share. They will. That's the growth. That's the energy growth. But mm-hmm. under no scenario is oil and gas going away. Mm-hmm. In fact, most, most scenarios, even the pessimistic ones, have us you know, kind of flat. Maybe the renewables start eating into our, our market share, not share, but the volume that we're producing maybe in a decade, but most of the projections are flat. That still requires a very, very large industry with good people 
And this is for going to be a couple of decades. Mm -hmm. And if there's someone in undergrad in, say, mechanical engineering, and they're like, okay, do I go to work for something not oil and gas or, or, or oil and gas? It's like, okay, well, there's going to be a shortage of people in oil and gas, yeah. and it's cyclical, and it's going to be not fun sometimes, but your job's safe. There's so much opportunity. There, mm -hmm. There's And we need new talent because the industry still, it's a little top-heavy still. Yeah. And that started changing, you know, up through, say, 2014, 15. But, yeah, the last five or six years have really made that slow down. Also, new ideas. So on the ESG side, it's, there's always – everyone has a different opinion on, on ESG. Some of this stuff makes a lot of sense, especially on, on methane emissions. Mm -hmm. It's what I'm going to talk about tomorrow. We actually have a research paper partnered up with one of the companies that presented on Monday called Kairos. They're one of these companies with them. They have a bunch of Cessnas and some airplanes and, and some monitoring equipment, okay. monitor methane leaks. And what we found was, and that's gotten so cheap, mm -hmm. there's no reason to not do that. Mm -hmm. And the value of the methane we captured was outstanding. This is our best project. Mm -hmm. So talking about methane leak, when you're leaking something you should be selling. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So all in the costs of the flyover and our own repairs, the project, based on the value of the methane we captured, it paid out in five days. Oh, my gosh. What? Five days. And talk, compare that to any other project an oil and gas company has. It like pays off in yeah. 10 years. Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah it, that's crazy. Exactly. And then it declines. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And you know, some of this is going to require you know, maintenance, but it's really like it's shifting our perception a little bit. It's kind of a choice. It's like, do I prioritize this? It is profitable. The numbers show it is profitable. This is most of the folks in the Permian and the Eagleford and wherever else – this is probably going to be your most profitable project, fixing your methane leaks, just based on those economics. Oh, it doesn't scale, though. You can't go manufacture more yeah, methane you can't leaks. Go beyond, I think. But no, this should, be, this should be a priority. It should come at the front of the this, – this should be a – everyone's you – know, one of their biggest priorities right now. I mean, because we all know it's there, so you might as well just take yes. it and sell it. And we don't know – you don't know how much it is until you actually measure. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's something oil and gas is good at, but we're going to have to get used to this as well. Like, there are these, you know, convoluted EPA regulations, but they don't really – they don't measure what mm -hmm. you're actually leaking. So that, that's, that's important to remember going through all this is you only fix what's actually leaking, not, not what some EPA mm -hmm. convoluted formula is telling you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, taking that mindset and extrapolating that to, okay, if oil and gas can fix all of our, you know, say half of our methane leaks – then our industry will have been responsible for just a huge dent in the greenhouse gas emissions emitted by the country and the planet mm -hmm. if we get really good at this. And we can. There's no reason this shouldn't happen. It pays for itself. Mm -hmm. It's not even like carbon tax or any, any of that stuff. So it's kind of a, it's a mentality that you know, maybe that I think everyone should have. You know, prior, this, is, this is one of those ESG things that makes yeah, sense for everyone. Sense. Everyone wins. Yeah. And one of the few times in in life where every single person at the table being affected by this wins. Mm. Mineral owners, oil and gas company, service company, the environment, environmentalists, politicians. Um, that's rare. Yeah, the, that's rare for everyone the, to be shaking the, hands. The public, <laughs> the public would increase severance taxes yeah. from selling that methane that would otherwise leak. Everyone wins from this. So this mm. is something we can all get behind. Huh. And then you know, taking it a step further, you know, carbon emissions, there's stuff we can all do to really dec decrease our, not the carbon dioxide actually in the barrel of oil, but the carbon dioxide we burn because oil and gas uses a lot of oil and gas. We use a lot of our own product mm -hmm. to get it out of the ground. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a ratio and making that more efficient. So we collectively, our industry can remove more greenhouse gas emissions 
than the highest aspirations of all the renewables and all the Teslas in the world. Mm. And it's not going to take much effort. It's not going to take, take much money. Mm. It's a mentality. We have to change our worldview a little bit. And once people see that, that oil and gas is taking care of their own stuff, yeah. it's like, well, we'll no longer be this kind of... Bad people. The, the, yeah, yeah, exactly. And there are people in the U.S. who are always going to hate oil and gas yeah. who just don't have all the facts. Mm-hmm. But there's a huge number of people in the middle who are like, okay... Need returns, need to be actually profitable. That's mm-hmm. happening you know, this year, definitely, and yeah. most definitely next year, 2022, when our hedges roll off. You know, do that first or you know, alongside all of these ESG initiatives that actually do make sense. Mm-hmm. And the image is going to be drastically improved. And you got all these people kind of on the fence who are like, oh, I like the returns, but I don't know about you know, the, you know, the carbon risk or mm-hmm. I, you know, I just don't know. You do stuff like that, those people are going to come back on our side. Mm-hmm. And we'll no longer be that bad guy. There's always going to be a lot of you know, people. Like it's also how we market ourselves, which is yes. something we need to, like you yeah. said, we all need to do better as an industry. Yeah. Because yeah. I really like the, the whole, like your whole comment on that and the whole method, because that's a really big, big issue mm-hmm. right now. And, you know, for those listening and the future generation, we're talking about decades. And if, yeah. if we can get that under the mindset of people outside of oil and gas, then a decade from now, people might, it might switch and oil and gas is like the main thing and solar mm-hmm. and wind might be actually, sure. you, you don't know. I mean, you yeah. don't know, right? There's so much time, but yep. thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. And it sounds like your talk tomorrow is going to be really good. Yeah, I'm looking forward um, to it. So we're excited. That's great. And we really appreciate you taking the time to come on today. Yes, thank, thank you so you. much for coming on. And it's really cool to see a young you know, professional like yourself. He was 40 under 40, by yeah, the way. I forgot to mention really that. Cool. Yeah. Because yeah. like... Yeah, it's just really cool to see someone close to our age yeah. like, having achieved all of that and, you know, being, you know, talking at a conference and kind of showing up for, you know, the younger generation. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank well, you. Appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. Thank you.